All right, our teaching for tonight comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 46. And here Jesus says the following. He says to his disciples, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, well, my master is taking a long time in coming, and then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and to to drink and to get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. This is God's word. Um, So, about a month ago, just so we understand where, the, where, where we are in the context of Luke, about a month ago, we looked at the transfiguration account. And the transfiguration is one of those pivotal events in the Gospels. It's the time where Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, reveals his full glory to his closest inner circle of disciples, even as he also tells them that his glory will not fully be revealed this side of heaven to the rest of the world. In other words, it's getting darker before it gets lighter. And he goes down the mountain. Remember, Peter wants to tent all that glory, but he says, no, there's, there's work to be done. He goes down the mountain. And so when he comes down the mountain, he starts teaching his disciples almost constantly, not only about his impending death and resurrection, but also about his second coming. And then you fast forward to Palm Sunday. And Most of us have kind of a familiar picture in our minds regarding this. It's like the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but it's a unique entry of a king because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And so he comes gentle, lowly, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and it's an unusual, otherworldly kind of king. And we get that picture. But even the prophecy surrounding Palm Sunday, so the the traditional Old Testament lesson that we read on that weekend is from Zechariah 9 that says, the coming Messiah will come into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of the donkey. But where do you get that whole, like, the palm thing? That's actually considerably more nuanced because there isn't so much a direct prophecy that we point to. Uh, Worshiping with palm branches is talked about in Leviticus. It's certainly talked about uh, here on Palm Sunday. It's talked about in Revelation at the end of time, people waving branches in worship. But actually, if you're going to get to the heart of probably where it's prophesied in the Old Testament, you've got to go to the end of Psalm 96. And at the end of Psalm 96, it talks about uh, trees and fields and forests waving and essentially singing and dancing 
at the sight of their creator coming to liberate the world. And so here's the point. On Palm Sunday or Palm Sunday weekend, when we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it, it, yes, it's about his first coming and the pinnacle of his coming, crescendoing to his death and resurrection, but it's just as much or more about his second coming because as people are holding those palm branches and waving them, what they are saying is, we need the, the one who comes to bring justice and judges the whole world. We need the one who will come and liberate all creation from uh, the, essentially the decay and, and destruction that was ushered into the world through mankind's sin. And therefore, the concept, really even after Palm Sunday, the whole of Holy Week, Jesus' teaching is not primarily at that moment just about his death and resurrection. It's about his second coming. During Holy Week, after Palm Sunday, Jesus is incessantly speaking about his second coming. And therefore, what we're looking at here tonight on Palm Sunday weekend is this concept of readiness for the second coming of Christ. What does it mean in light of Jesus' death and resurrection to live ready for Jesus to return? We know it comes at an hour that is unexpected. We know he's going to come to judge the earth. We know he's going to liberate creation from the bondage of sin, which means that all the plants and animals and uh, will finally experience freedom as they meant, just like the, the believers will experience true freedom. But in this moment right now, what does it mean to live as people who are ready for Christ to return right now? Because an eternal perspective absolutely changes the way you live in the present. Okay, so here's, here's the text, and it's essentially just three different analogies that Jesus uses. The first one is probably the main one. It's the analogy of servants at a household who are awaiting their master's return from his own wedding. So he's the groom. And in ancient society, especially at Jewish weddings, the, the weddings could go late into the evening. So like the second or third watch of the night was typical. So 9 to midnight or even midnight to 3 a.m. before the groom actually returns home with his bride. And what Jesus is telling the servants here is this. You got to be ready. Now being ready means being dressed being prepared, having your lamps lit, so that when the groom comes home, he doesn't find a locked door and he's left waiting there with his bride. You know, there's like there's a sense of urgency. And so I need you ready for that moment. In fact, uh, this is one of those like classic King James translations uh, moments. The, the King James version of this translation said, gird your loins for his return. Wonderful translation. I'm also happy that we've, we've changed it because in modern times, honestly, loins is, is like one of those words, uh, you know, un, unless it sounds like, you know, unless you're reading a saucy Danielle Steele novel, you typically don't use words like loins, right? So um, what, it, what modern translators have updated it to, however, is just be ready. And the problem is that's not enough. Because of course you're supposed to be ready. But the gird your loins thing, what that actually means is, you can even see there with the servants. In those days, people wore robes that went down to the ground. And they were, therefore, they were very restrictive when it came to movement. And if you wanted to be in a hurry, what you would do is you would take the excess material from your robes and you would tuck it into your belt so that your legs are unencumbered for running purposes. And so to say be ready, is this, it's not the same thing. What Jesus is actually teaching his disciples here is take anything in your life that is restricting you from readiness for Christ 
whether it is whatever's occupying your mind, whatever is occupying your bank account, whatever is occupying your schedule, if it is cumbersome when it comes to being ready for Christ, you've got to tuck that away. Tuck it away. Get rid of it somehow. It's not nearly as important as being ready. Now, Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples, must sense that they don't get the urgency and the weight of what he's saying. And so he ratchets up the intensity and the danger attached to the analogy. He actually gives a second analogy here. And he says, okay, of course the hour is unexpected when Jesus will come, but I want you to think about the intensity of the situation, the weightiness of the situation. Think about it more, not just like a groom returning from a wedding, but like a thief invading into your house. And you don't know when that's going to happen, of course, like by definition. And therefore, in order to be secure, you have to be perpetually ready. And there's a sense of urgency all the time. You've got to keep those lamps burning all the time. You can't turn off home security systems. Now, what, what is the point behind Jesus not naming the date in the future when he's going to return? Fascinatingly, Christian groups throughout history, despite how many times Jesus says in the New Testament, this is an unexpected hour, Christians have gotten obsessed with predicting the hour. Don't waste your energy on that when Jesus told you not to. Spend your energy being ready. And part of the benefit of not knowing is any teacher knows the benefit of the difference between a pop quiz and a semester exam because you can cram for a semester exam. But pop quizzes are the result of lifestyle. Where am I at? Am I staying on top of the material in the moment? And the Christian faith is not just a certain work or a certain test to pass, but a readiness and a faithfulness at all times so that you know, you know full well how the flesh works. If Jesus said he's coming back in 10 years, you would have many people, most people, who said, okay, nine years, 11 months, three weeks, six days, and I'll get my repentance. And at that point, you're very clearly not repenting because you're sorry over what you've done or you're appreciative of God's grace. You're repenting for your own personal benefit and your own personal gain, which is no true repentance at all. Planned repentance is not repentance. Pseudo-repentance is not repentance. True repentance is born out of a, house, a heart that is perpetually grateful for the grace of Jesus Christ. It's a living organism. And so what Jesus has said through these first, you know, however many verses, these first two analogies, he said, okay, in, in this analogy, I'm the groom, the bridegroom. The servants are you or us, God's people. The bride, of course, throughout the New Testament, we get this concept that the bride of Christ is the church of Christ. So the analogy, it, it gets a little bit strange at times, but very clearly, Jesus is also saying when he comes home, he wants us to celebrate. He wants us, uh, it's going to be an unexpected hour, and he wants us to be ready so that we don't miss out on the celebration. Now, it's at this point that Peter asks for some clarification, which was pretty typical with rabbi and student that a, a disciple would ask for some kind of clarification on whatever the teaching was. And uh, it's at this point Peter says, okay, are you talking to us disciples specifically or are you talking to all believers? Which essentially amounts to, are you talking to leaders, eventual leaders in the church, or are you talking to all Christians about this readiness principle? And Jesus says, well, both, but there's an additional level of responsibility levied on those who are leaders. Leaders in the home, leaders in the world, leaders in the church. 
There's additional privilege, but there's also additional power and responsibility there. And what he tells is a third analogy here by which he says, you know, not only are there servants of a household, but amongst those servants, there is a manager. So this is not the master, but it's amongst the servants, there's, different, there's a leader. There's a higher-ranking servant who is the steward of the household, and he was responsible for things like uh, food distribution and the management of the finances and security in the home and personnel management and all that kind of stuff. And there's greater freedom, there's greater privilege, there's also greater responsibility. And we also all know that with greater power becomes the potential for the abuse of power. There are some, like, philosophically and ideologically that think all power is wrong. Power is not inherently wrong. Any system has different varying levels of hierarchy and power. The problem is the abuse of power. And the abuse of power especially comes when there's a lack of accountability. And that's why Jesus says for this third servant, or I'm sorry, in this third analogy, that the, the manager-servant notices that the master is a long way off. There's no accountability, and he thinks he can do whatever he wants. And so he abuses his fellow servants. We're told he eats, and he's a glutton, and he gets drunk. And uh, it's very clearly an abuse of power. But what eventually happens is that the master comes home, the groom comes home at an unexpected hour. He finds this manager of the servants who's... uh, abusing his power, and we're told at that point he cuts him to pieces, he's to be cut to pieces and assigned to a place with the unbelievers. Now, commentators will say, I don't know exactly what that means. It clearly doesn't sound good, right? Uh, so whatever it is, it's not good. It's, it's punishment, judgment, whatever. But there's another part in here that I want to make sure that we don't miss, and this is, I, I would have saved this for the lessons and applications, but it's so clearly right in this section, and it's super easy to miss, and I don't want you to miss it, and it's this principle. We're told that uh, the manager, okay, so when he comes home, uh, one of the reasons, excuse me, one, when the master comes home and he finds the manager abusing the servants, one of the reasons that the manager is abusing servants is because he's not doing what he's supposed to do. Now, look at specifically what it says. Verse 43, it says, It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing what he's supposed to do when he returns. Now, the life principle is, don't just watch, watch and wait for Jesus, but don't just watch and wait for Jesus. Don't just be standing there, be doing what God tells you to do. Um, in other words, here's, look at this. Look at it like this. The manager is doing what he's not supposed to do in part because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing the entire time. Do you understand that principle? The sin of omission is typically what leads to the sin of commission. We oftentimes define sin simply in terms of doing the wrong thing. Doing the wrong thing almost always comes because you weren't properly filling your time with doing the right thing. The biblical, that's exactly what this is saying right here. The, the, the biblical example of this, my favorite biblical example of this, is the story of King David. Because almost everybody, if you say, what was King David's sin? They'll say what? Well, David and Bathsheba. Or, you know, there's, there's murder that comes after that. Almost nobody will start with what it says at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11. You know what it says there? That's the start of that story. The narrative is written to say the first sin was the sin of omission. It says, it was the springtime, the time when the kings go off to war. 
and David sent Joab to go with the king's men out into battle. David stayed at home in his palace where he was comfortable. He remained in Jerusalem, and one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. You see what's going on there? David did what he wasn't supposed to do. Why? Because he had opportunity, because he wasn't doing the stuff that he was supposed to be doing in life. The sins of omission are always the sins and opportunities that create the sins of commission in our lives. So fill your time productively. That's an important part of godly lifestyle. Some of us struggle with addictions. Some of us struggle with materialism. Some of us struggle with envy and discontentment. Why? In part because we've got opportunity and we've got opportunity because we're not filling up the rest of our schedule with the stuff that God has asked us to do anyways. You follow me? Um, in other words, we're not living in readiness for Christ's return. Now, I'm going to share with you one story here, and I'm not even sure if it totally fits here. It certainly fits with readiness for Christ, but honestly, this is one of those stories that I've told several times already, so some of you are aware of it, but it's one, of, it's one as much as any that I'll have people come back. I've had people come back to me years later and say, say that was like a paradigm-shifting thing for me, so I figured I might as well share it here. Um, when I was in college, a lot of college students go on like spring break, right? It's that, it's that time of year. Um, I, never, I never really did, in part because I was always broke and wanted to go home and work. So I worked like 50, 60 hours to try to make some cash. Uh, but some of my friends would go out on spring break. And I remember one of my friends telling me a story about spring break once where uh, he said one of the guys got the idea while they were out, while they were away, while they were traveling, and he said, uh, you know, maybe we should go to a strip club tonight. And um, honestly, uh, after COVID and with the internet, I don't even know if strip clubs are a thing anymore. I, I hope they're not, but, you know, um, I think you all get the picture. But a bunch of college guys here with this idea, and one of them, one of them had the guts to say, you know, I'm out. I can't do it. And he wasn't doing it in a holier-than-thou kind of way. What he said was, I don't know what I would say if Jesus came back tonight and asked me what I was thinking. Like, I don't know how I would rationalize that behavior. And it, like, sobered up the group, and they all realized it was a bad idea. Now, I'll tell you what, I would much prefer that you were motivated by the gospel to be always ready for Christ. But the reality is, look at what Jesus teaches here. Jesus teaches this story about a master who uh, cuts servants and assigns them to a place of the unbelievers, a place of judgment. That's not exactly gospel motivation, and yet it's motivation nonetheless. And sometimes that's really helpful. For fallen flesh in a fallen world, sometimes we need that because, you know, all of us know a little bit of mild angst, a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of anxiety is sometimes really helpful for our attention, uh, for improving our performances, and it, and it functions like smelling salts often for our behaviors. So that's the intensity of Jesus' three analogies and the urgency of it. What do we learn from this? I got two lessons and applications for you here tonight. The first one is living wide awake. Have you ever noticed that whenever Jesus talks about the second coming in the Gospels, it's always nighttime? Why is it always nighttime? 
I can give you, I can think of at least a couple reasons. Number one, that means something's coming to an end. When sun has set, some kind of era, some kind of day is coming to conclusion. And so Christ's second coming means the end of this era. Okay. Another thing, however, is the fact that when we get to nighttime, um, most people, especially if you have a normal school or work schedule, it means that's the time when people start to get sleepy. And part of what he's saying there is as we go on in time, as the world goes on, the world is getting spiritually sleepy. He says it in other ways too. He says things like time will come when people won't put up with sound doctrine and the love of uh, the warmth of many hearts will grow cold and, and all sorts of different ways. But it's the idea of spiritual sleepiness. The Apostle Paul picks up on that exact same kind of theme in Romans 13 when he says uh, to believers to wake up from your spiritual slumber because the hour is near. So what does it mean to be spiritually sleepy? Well, what does it mean to be spiritually awake? To be spiritually awake means to be alert to your surroundings, alert to the reality of what's going on, alert to the reality of Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and the eternal implications of all those things, to be aware of that all the time. Therefore, to be spiritually asleep, for the world to be sleepy right now is the opposite. Now, think through for a second what sleepiness is. Um, when you're asleep, sleep is a, it's a fascinating study. It's honestly, the science on it is probably only like 100 years old. But um, when you're asleep, it's not as though you're dead. It's that you're non-conscious. So when you're asleep, all of your systems are still fully functioning. At least as far as I understand it, your respiratory system is still pumping air. Your circulatory system is still pumping blood. And for that matter, your nervous system is still sending signals which is part of the reason why when you're asleep, if you have particularly vivid dreams, at some point you've probably woken yourself up before because your muscles were reflexing and you were jerking because you're trying to uh, fight off a monster or running from some kind of danger or something like that. You've almost probably, probably all had this experience. My, my little dog who sleeps on the floor uh, in her bed right next to me. She, every night when she goes to bed, after she re rearranges and fluffs up the pillows and stuff, she gets down and within 10 seconds she's out. And within 45 seconds, she's dreaming. And if you've ever seen a dog when they dream, it's just adorable. But they, you know, like they'll, she'll whine a little bit or sometimes she'll even growl a little and sometimes she'll kick her legs like she's running away from something. Why? Because your nervous system cannot tell the difference between reality and perceived reality. The way you feel, your nervous system cannot tell the difference between objective reality and subjective reality. It cannot tell the difference between fact and perception. It can't tell the difference between life and a dream. Now actually, interestingly, a lot of counseling functions on this premise. So probably 90% or so of counseling, professional counseling, is either giving people the coping skills to deal with their objective reality or correcting their misperception correcting their misperceptions so that their misperceptions come into congruence with actual reality. So for instance, if you're counseling with uh, a girl who's anorexic, who looks in the mirror, she sees one thing, she perceives it to be true, therefore she feels it to be true, even though everybody else in the world can see that that's not the case. Why? Because your nervous system cannot tell the difference. You cannot feel the difference between perception and reality. Okay, if that's true while we're asleep, and if it's true that in this world we are spiritually, the world itself is spiritually asleep, what does that mean? What that has to mean is you have tons of people 
in life who are living by misperceptions of reality. You, being spiritually asleep is to respond physically to a world that doesn't actually exist. To respond to a world that you think it's this way, but in actuality, according to the truth, according to the resurrection, it's very different. And therefore, when the world lives as though, well, I, I was born, and then I live maybe 70 or 80 years, and I'm just going to squeeze as much comfort, as much pleasure, as much joy out of this time as I can, and then I'll get placed into a grave, and then it's all said and done. That's living asleep. It's living by an illusion. It's living in a dream. It's not reality. The biblical reality, the biblical teaching is that this life is merely a vestibule into eternity and that the only way to live wisely and properly is to live with an eternal perspective in mind. Not so much concerned about 70, 80 years, but concerned with eternity. Now, what does that mean? It absol- it's so extraordinarily practical. Everything in life changes when you're living it just according to finite time versus infinite time. Uh, let me give you, we could do dozens of examples. For time's sake, I'll just give you one or two or three, okay? Um, here's one. This is maybe the most obvious one because the most pivotal event in life is death. Okay, so what does the Bible say about your pers- perspective of death? The Apostle Paul says something great to the Thessalonian Christians. He says, when you mourn your loved ones who pass, do not mourn like the rest of the world that has no hope. That's a great phrase because, first of all, what it doesn't say, he doesn't say don't mourn. I've heard Christians talk that way before. Like they immediately want to give you a Bible passage and tell you to stop grieving. That is uh, borderline abusive. It's dehumanizing and almost psychotic. Of course, mourn. Jesus, at graveside of a friend he's about to raise, still mourns. So yes, mourn the loss of loved ones, but don't mourn like the rest of the world that has no hope. See, the rest of the world, if you think that your kid, if you think that your Uh, loved ones just go into graves and they're gone and you never experience relationship with them again, of course you're going to mourn without any hope. But if you mourn with the reality, see the Bible says Jesus is the first fruits of those who have passed away and we will rise just like he rose, which means that your loved ones, you're going to see them again, you're going to hold them again and actually the relationship that you have with them in the future is going to be better than the relationship that you have had with them in the past. And therefore, while you grieve, you don't grieve like the rest of the world with no hope. You grieve with an eternal perspective. That's very different. That's the only way to have hope in those situations. Let me give you another one. Your identity. Um, Some of you have gotten to the point, actually, I know as a fact, some of you have either played professional sports or semi-professional sports or you've been professionally uh, like a musician or a semi-professional musician or whatever the phrasing there would be, but you've, you've gotten like farther than 98, 99% of people in that field would ever get, right? Some of you have made lots of money and lost lots of money and, and those types of things. When you come down on the other side and you don't get to the place that you always thought you needed to get to, that's really tough. So when you don't achieve the level and the status that you always dreamt that you would get to and now you're coming down and now you have the rest of your life to live and after, after you get cut or after you get that scathing review or after you get fired, see, everybody, like, that hurts for everybody. But what does it mean if it absolutely ruins your life? What if it means if you think you're absolutely on plan B in your life moving forward? Plan B is a terrible place to live. 
On the other hand, in view of eternity, you know, if the most important thing for all eternity is to be a redeemed child of God, and nobody can ever possibly take that status away from you, then you are absolutely still on plan A. You're not on plan B. And therefore, the only choice that you get moving forward is are you going to let some myopic temporal perception or an objective eternal reality dictate to your nervous system how you feel? You understand that? Are you going to let some short-sighted myopic temporal perception about where your life is and where it should be or the objective eternal reality that is found in resurrected life. Which of those gets to tell you how to feel? Which of those affects your nervous system? In other words, are you, are you going to live asleep or awake to eternal reality? I'll give you one more, one more, and then we'll close on this. Um, some of you, I know, some of us, we all at some point struggle with like bitterness and holding on to stuff. And it's like, okay, somebody has really hurt you in the past for some reason. Maybe it was an uh, ex-spouse. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was, it could be any number of things. Uh, but they hurt you and you're walking around with this feeling of like injustice. Like when are they going to get theirs? You know, like I cannot have peace until, uh, and that's the reason for the bitterness because you think they're going to get away with it. And what it, that is, is it's a lack of perspective. It's a lack of remembering judgment day. You know what Judgment Day is? It's the day when God writes all the wrongs that have ever been committed throughout the course of this world. And on that day, anybody who has not repented of G- to Jesus Christ for all of their sins will have to stand before Jesus as a just judge, the one who is capable of cutting and sending to the place where judgment exists. So nobody gets away with anything. You just repent and turn to Jesus now, or you face the judge, just judge in the long run, but nobody's going to get away. And God says, the only thing he says is, you need to forgive. That's the only thing I'm asking you to do. Just forgive. So walk around with your scars, because I know you're hurt, and own those scars. That's okay. Don't walk around with your baggage. If you walk around with your, what forgiveness is, is it means letting go. If you're walking around with your baggage, that means that you haven't let go. And honestly, the only person you're hurting at that point is you. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who have held on for things for 20, 30, 40 years. And it's like, I, I love you. You're not holding anything over that person. You're not holding anything against that person. They don't feel what you're holding. The only person you're hurting at this point is you. So what I need you to do is I need you to wake up to this reality. I need you to light those lamps and live ready for Christ's imminent return. Now, um, I won't go into, uh, you guys know I often will bring out like a quote from the early Christian church on these types of matters. I'm not going to do that here. All I want to say is this. I think sometimes people get the impression that the early Christian church was so vibrant and so impactful because they had magic powers. You know, they could speak in tons and miraculous healings and, and, you know, in the apostolic era, so far as we can tell, they did. But shortly after that, the early church was still powerful, but they didn't have all the powers, as far as we can tell. How are they so powerful? You know what it is? They weren't afraid to die. So all of these social justice issues that they pushed forward, all of the uh, taking care of other individuals during the plagues of the Roman Empire, all of the starting of the hospitals, all of the practicing in an illegal religion, Uh, this constant risking of life, why on earth are they constantly risking their lives like that? Because they're not afraid to die. They figured, my job is to submit to God's will. And I believe that he is going to bless that. 
And if I submit to God's will and for some reason I die, then he's also going to bless that because he's going to call me home. Either way, I win. Either way, in the end, I win. So they're living with an eternal perspective. They're living ready for Jesus. When you're not afraid to die, you are capable of a superhuman amount of good. All right, last point. The, Jesus mentioned earlier, um, we mentioned earlier, that knowing Jesus' return is eminent is really helpful because it gives you a little bit of an edge in life, and those edges are kind of helpful. But it's not the gospel. Um, you could be relatively ready for Jesus' return, but still totally undeserving of salvation. Uh, the good news is Jesus doesn't save you because of your perfect readiness in the same way that he doesn't condemn you because of your sleepiness. He saves you entirely because of his grace. He loves you enough to save you entirely because of his own doing and his own track record. And in fact, I really had to restrain myself from touching on it earlier because it's the best line in this whole thing. Uh, but there's something extraordinary and it's easy to pass over in verse 37. Let me show it to you again. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, the master will dress himself to serve and he will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Now, whenever Jesus says truly, he's cluing you into his most important statement in a section. Truly I tell you, amen, amen. Here's what he's saying. See, in ancient times, masters never got dressed to serve their servants. Rabbis never got down on all fours to wash their disciples' feet. Grooms never came home from their wedding and treated their servants almost like they were their brides. People today don't do that either, whatever the modern, you know, in modern context that would be. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel that he's teaching here is that his servants are treated like the beautiful bride. The master here in this story is clearly the master of a different kind of kingdom that he views himself as the one who serves the servants. Jesus is the master of a kingdom of grace. So it's characterized by nonstop forgiveness, undeserved acceptance, and unconditional love. Jesus is the only master who serves servants. Jesus is the only master who is cut apart at the cross like a criminal for the sins of criminals so that the unprepared servants and the napping disciples would nonetheless be forgiven and saved. Jesus is the only master who saves servants at great cost to himself and invites them to recline at his table for forever. Our readiness for him does not save us. Our master's grace alone is what saves us. Our readiness for him is simply a response to his love and completed service to us. And our readiness for him is what makes our lives powerful and impactful. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, if you call us home tonight or you return to us tonight, we ask that you make us ready. Help us tuck away anything in our lives that distracts us from that readiness. You have served us so graciously. May we now serve you so faithfully. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.